people tend to really underestimate um, how much litigation is decided by uh, resources, and they overestimate how much litigation is decided by justice. Um, if Hasbro were to sue Autark, let's say, um, it would cost $500,000 for Autark to get to summary judgment in that case. And I'm 99% certain that Autark would win summary judgment. I'm 5% certain that I could get $500,000 to get there. And so from point of view of a, a litigious Fortune 500 company, um, what the contract says doesn't matter nearly as much. But I think their core plan of all new content under the new license, uh, the new license will favor us better than the old license did. And over time, we expect all the creators to migrate to this new license. I don't think that core plan has changed at all. So they've just put a velvet glove over the steel fist. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built modern nerd culture. Today we are talking about the biggest nerd debacle I think I have ever seen in my lifetime. We are talking about Dungeons and Dragons and the epic OGL blowup, in which owner of D&D, Wizards of the Coast, put together an insanely bad contract and managed to destroy their fanbase and somehow strengthen their competitors. To discuss that subject and role-playing in general, I have with me Alex McCree, creator and writer for, you may know him of, the Ascended RPG tabletop series, as well as the Adventurer Conqueror King uh, series of games, which is also built on the original OGL. We previously talked with Alex about his career in creating the website The Escapist, and he's such an interesting guy that we just didn't get the chance to jump into his work in tabletop RPGs, but somehow Wizards of the Coast managed to find a way, and so we will talk about that here today. Thank you, Alex, for coming on the program. Hey, thanks for having me back. Great to be here. Help explain, uh, explain to us, because a lot of this might seem a little up in the air if you're not familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, which sure. of course is the epically popular uh, role-playing series. You know, when you think of tabletop RPGs, fantasy, you know, that's usually what you're thinking of. Uh, you want to break sure. us into what the OGL was and yeah. uh, what happened here? Yeah, yeah so... In the uh, mid-1990s, um, uh, TSR, Attack and Studies Rules, had established a dominant position in the tabletop game space with its Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. And it was sternly litigious at that time. It sued um, Mayfair Games and Iron Crowd, among others, um, on claims that it had uh, a copyright over certain um, game rules that they emulated to make the game compatible. Um, when TSR went bankrupt, it was purchased by Wizards of the Coast, and Ryan Dancy, who was at that time a senior vice president for Wizards of the Coast, made the move to put the Dungeons and Dragons rules under an open source license, which he called the Open Game License. And his idea was that uh, role playing games benefit from network effects, uh, where the value of a game is. Uh, increased by the square of the number of people you can play it with. And that by making Dungeons & Dragons the default open standard in the industry, uh, he would catapult Wizards to success. And he was right, 100% correct. And the uh, open game license uh, saw the rise of 3rd edition D&D, which was a tremendous success. 
Um, when they switched to fourth edition, for various reasons, they moved away from the open game license. Fourth edition flopped, and we saw the rise of Pathfinder using the uh, open game license. And so for fifth edition, Wizards went back to the open game license, and once again, uh, the open game license um, was a tremendous uh, boon. They got massive third-party support. Fifth edition became the game that everyone plays. Now, in the most recent updates, um, they've, or, well, not the most recent, let's say in the update that started all of this madness, they announced that they were going to be moving away from the OGL in favor of what was called OGL 1.1. It's now being called OGL 2. Um, but the license that they proposed was not at all an open license. Under the original OGL, you could do whatever you wanted with the mechanics that were put under the SRD system reference document. There were no royalties, there were no reported requirements, um, there was no ownership transfer, and it was a perpetual worldwide royalty-free license to do whatever you wanted. Uh, the new license they were proposing had none of that. Um, in fact, it had some very pernicious provisions, including royalty payments based on gross revenue, regardless of profit, uh, clawbacks of um, the right to use your work uh, perpetually and irrevocably worldwide while they had the right to terminate the license on you, um, a number of other things as well as uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat frightening language uh, that might have implicated people trying to sell miniatures or do videos or other factors. So the community, um, with justification, reacted uh, with outrage to that. And the final stone uh, was when they declared that the old open game license was going to be deauthorized, which was the equivalent of um, Sun Microsystems announcing that Java is no longer open source. Now you owe us royalties for every Java product. It was, it was crazy. Um, now, they've since backtracked on that, and that's interesting that they've backtracked, um, but I think they've really shattered the trust of the gaming community at this point. I don't see a lot of people at this point, really excited to forgive them and return to the fold. Um, but, you know, consumer memories are short, so I think they're counting on on, on the shortness of that and, and a few other factors, which I could go into. So, yeah, the original OGL, my understanding was, um, the idea was uh, D&D, among other things, what it is, is it's a series of rules that you can build a game on. And they're like, okay, if other people want to refer back to our work or they want to use our rules, here you go. And then that would mean you have all these other tabletop games and systems that come up that refer back. Theoretically, that might help wizards or, well, now wizards, sales with D&D, but it would also uh, help grow the interest of people that might be into tabletop because I, I was playing tabletop in 2000. I mean, I was a lot younger, obviously, but I mean, yeah, it's gotten a lot bigger. It really hit mainstream um, in the last decade. And... So yeah, I think you're right. I think that strategy completely worked, which is why I think it was so shocking to people when they said, oh, by the way, yeah, all that stuff that we said, you could have this in perpetuity, make whatever you want, we don't care. Yeah, that's changed now. Oh, and by the way, you owe us 25% if you make any money on this. Oh, and by the way, we may or may not just grab your uh, creation, you know, just because right. we want to, just for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, it was grotesque. It was... Uh... A perfidious treachery on the part of Wizards of the Coast, as I said in my uh, substack. Yeah, and it's uh, it's an act, you know that that's really what perked my interest because I think the way you described it. So, kind of give people an idea of what goes into making. I don't think people really understand the work that takes to make something like the RPG series that you've worked on. Well, yeah, sure. So, um, the good news 
is that role-playing game writing will probably not be uh, overtaken by AI anytime soon. The bad news is that it's because role-playing game writing is incredibly difficult, time-consuming, research-intensive, and low-paid. So cool. It's about the last place that AI is going to uh, focus on. Um, as an example, uh, Acts 2 is currently 232,000 words, um, and that's uh, largely technical language that has to be very precisely written with almost a lawyerly attention, but at the same time has to be sprinkled with enough flavorful fluff to keep the reader entertained. Um, and it also has to be presented in a coherent manner where someone who's never played your game before can pick up your book, read it, and understand what you're talking about. And the combination of accessibility to new users plus fluff plus technical writing is really hard. Um, a lot of game designers at this point don't even bother with trying to make it very accessible to new people. Uh, they just assume you already know how to play. And often they don't really bother with particularly tight rules. They just assume the judge or the game master will work it all out. Um, but for those who are who do try to to, to hit all three, it's uh, it's an exceptionally tough field to craft your work in. The writing is slow and painful. So having the ability to turn to the open game license as the basis for a game um, and to use the system reference documents that it incorporated uh, was a huge boat. Um, it's the difference between inventing the car and building a kit car that you can order the parts. Um, and both require a level of mechanical skill, but the former is far more difficult than the latter. And it seems to get a lot of the, the busy work, essentially, or a lot of the, what, what is necessary to really get the thing going. And so they did well, that. Reinventing they... the wheel, literally, is what you do. Um, and frustratingly so, because U.S. copyright law doesn't protect game mechanics, uh, but nevertheless, they do get litigated often. And so you run the risk of being, you know, assailed by Wizards or Hasbro or some other well-funded company um, asserting that your game violates their copyrights. And even if the law is on your side, which usually is, because again, the law does not protect the copyright game mechanics, even if the law is on your side, it's not like the typical indie game studio has the funds to have a litigation with Hasbro. So the open game license created this safe harbor wherever we felt like we can all use these this proven set of rules that's been play tested, it's well loved. No one's going to get sued. We all know what we have to do. We all know where the limits are, and um, and it was the perfect sort of uh, example of you know the old legal maxim that um, you know the proper role of, of regulation is to allow business and consumers to flourish, and that was exactly what we were seeing. Um, but all that's been thrown away now. One of the great points you made that I think a lot of other people, even like people who are associated with like some of the bigger alternatives like Paizo, for example, you, you made this point that, look, I used to be a lawyer, which I think we brought up in our last interview. It's look, there's a reality here, guys. It's not just that this is a big, thick legal document that looks really scary. It's that this is a very big company that looks very scary. Yes. And it, it, it's less about what's in the contract, it's more what it enables the lawyers to do. Is, is that Correct. about what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think people tend to really underestimate um, how much litigation is decided by uh, resources, and they overestimate how much litigation is decided by justice. Um, 
if Hasbro were to sue Autark, let's say, um, it would cost $500,000 for Autark to get to summary judgment in that case. And I'm 99% certain that Autark would win summary judgment. I'm 5% certain that I could get $500,000 to get there. And so from the point of view of a, a litigious Fortune 500 company, um, what the contract says doesn't matter nearly as much. Justice really comes into play only when it's two well-funded co companies fighting it out. Um, now, Paizo probably does have the funds to fight, and it is um, the, the main person who could combat this, um, and they seem inclined to do so, which was good news for gamers. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know of any other company in the space that could afford it. Maybe some of the big board game publishers, but, you know, they'd be unlikely to be attacked anyway. So the new idea, uh, OGL, to give people an understanding of kind of what a change was, the original OGL was like 900 words or something. It was less than 1,000. Yeah. And this, this, One new doc yeah, and this new document was 10 times that. Yes. Yeah. So what was the reaction from com the community and what what... How have we somehow turned the head of Wizards of the Coast, by the way, who just, they never turn away from a really bad idea, having been a Magic Gathering right. fan for a while, I can tell you. Well, I think Wizards of the Coast thought was as follows. There, uh, most of them are old Microsoft executives, and the entirety of the Microsoft business model is built on own the platform, lock them in, profit. And I think they felt that they had to lock in um, on the tabletop RPG space, and now it was time for the profit step. And so the idea was wipe out the competitors and um, monetize uh, the users. As it turns out, what they discovered was that they didn't have lock-in. Um, people were willing to uh, switch from D&D to another game system in a way that uh, they aren't willing necessarily to say the switch from Windows to Macintosh or vice versa. Um, because they didn't have lock-in, their attempt fumbled. And so now they are having to revisit what they intend to do. And today they released a new statement that backtracked on 95% of the most pernicious terms um, in in the prior um, the prior license. And you know, if they had come forward with these terms up front, probably a little controversy would have been avoided. But they, um, you know, they they strategically misjudged the situation, and they thought they were in a they were you know they were controlling a lock-in monopoly that they could endlessly exploit, and they're not. Something seems like there is a disconnect. At least the leadership of Wizards, and maybe that's because the president currently is is a former uh, person from Microsoft and from the gaming sector. What was Wizards' misunderstanding about monetizing uh, tabletop? Because it feels like they thought there was more money going through the system than they're, you know, being a poor tabletop player at times. Uh, really, there is. Um, I think they're not wrong that there's more money pouring through the system. Um, if you look at how much people are willing to spend on Games Workshop or Magic the Gathering, there's no theoretical reason why the average D&D player might not be willing to be to spend that much on D&D um, over time. Um, or at least some percentage of them would become big whales and spend a lot of money. Um, so they're not wrong in that regard. Um, where they went wrong, I think, was um, in assuming that consumer behavior wouldn't change if there was a viable alternative. And let me explain what I mean. 
if you've already got a ton of magic cards and a new game comes out that's really fun and a lot like magic but you're not going to switch because you've already spent a ton of money on magic cards with Dungeons dragons they said look our player base is just as loyal as magic so therefore we can um exploit that player base and monetize it but the problem is is that the dd players haven't got that huge magic collection that becomes useless to them they can switch so the cost of switching is much lower for a tabletop game than for the other products that they were comparing it to i think is where they is where they aired and so because that switching cost was low a lot of companies like paizo like myself a bunch of others have all said we're switching and a bunch of gamers have said we're switching and the signal that hit them loud and clear was people turning off their dnd beyond subscriptions um, in thousands and thousands and thousands, uh, that, that hit the loud and clear that, Hey, people, people really will turn off and away from us if we pursue this path. There were a number of leaks. The only thing that would really bother them is if it hurt their bottom line. Do you think that's true? Because that, that, all that stuff that also came with a warning that this is just something wizards expects to blow over. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're just hoping till people forget and then they're going to, you know, pick back up the ax. Yeah, so, well, first, I think it's important to remember that Wizards isn't a person. Wizards is a collection of people. And when I say they, uh, or speak of Wizards, I specifically mean the executive management team, as well as uh, the president of Hasbro, his chief of staff, and their general counsel. That's they. It isn't, you know, like rules or the cover artist. Those people do care about the players. They do care about the game. And they're by and large overworked and underpaid. Um, you know, there are tabletop game designers working for Wizards are getting rich. They're not they're not doing it to monetize the players and make big bucks. So um so I do think I think there was a disconnect internally between how um the team felt and how the executives felt. And you know, that's not uncommon in the video game space. You see that all the time indie development studio and publisher where the publisher's view of the players is totally different than the, the indie developers. Um, so yeah, so, there, so, so so let's be clear that the villains here are not the line workers at Wizards of the Coast. The, the villains are the executives who do in fact consider the player base to be cash cows and uh, and, and essentially, you know, uh, for, uh, they're there to be milked and let's, let's, let's get started on the others. It's something about what's changed in D&D, the culture, you know, and role-playing, the audience base. I think what we've seen, especially right before COVID, I think around 2015, I started saying it. People who previously had no interest in anything that got even within, you know, a mile of uh, tabletop RPGs. None whatsoever. But we had things that became more popular, like Critical Role. That's a big one. And so there and were new types of people coming in. It's part of this, yeah. like... They don't really understand the new players that came in, and so they were thinking that they could treat these people just like the their older base. Hmm. No, I I don't think that's what it was because I think most of the outrage actually came from um, more poor gamers than from the casuals. I think the casuals and the new players, uh, for the most part, um, it's only only slightly reached the. I think the real upset came from the third parties that produce in the space and make their living in the space. And those are by definition, fairly hardcore people. Um, I think looking at the new audience, what they look at is they're like, look, this is an audience that'll pay five bucks a month for a subscription for an online game, 
or they'll drop 20 bucks on their favorite MMO to buy uh, a new skin that they want. Like, you know, there's this, there's this digital goods consumption culture and this subscription culture within gaming circles that, um, has turned out to be hugely lucrative and, um, many, so I, I have a good friend who works, um, for one of the top uh, game development studios. And I asked him what it was like to be a game developer nowadays for a video game company. And he said it sucks because of the rise of micropayments. Whereas before, when you designed a game, your job was to make the game as fun as possible so that people would love to play it and buy your next game. And he said, and now your job is to addict them to spend money on your game. And the former was something you really enjoy doing, and the latter he hates. The latter is now what every video game company does. It's all about how do I monetize my player into spending money on microtransactions. Um, so I'll free to play mobile, et cetera. Yeah. Wizards is simply adopting that mindset for tabletop games. But it doesn't work exactly because, I mean, they're, they're very similar in video games. Obviously, much of that is built kind of on some of the work that D&D did. But they're, they're two different things with... You know, like you said, the core can be very a lot more different than I think Wizards realize. This all this makes me wonder, like, like how in touch is Wizards of the Coast with with people that are interested in tabletop RPGs? Oh, I don't think that this was due to lack of being in touch. Um, I um, I would stake my life on the fact that they were told loud and clear um, by their PR team and everyone else. That this was going to upset a lot of people. I know the 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 PR lead at Wizards of the Coast, the same as Greg Tito, he used to work for the Escape Desk and he co-wrote Acts with me. And um, you know, see, uh, Greg and I had our falling out on various issues, but he is a man of the highest integrity, and he is a man who has a very strong will, and he is very in touch with the D and D community. And I mean, I, I can't imagine any circumstance where he let this go forward, didn't raise the red flag, for instance. Um, I mean, it's just impossible to think otherwise. So, no, I think this was a very deliberate, this was not, this was not an action taken out of ignorance. This was a very deliberate step. And I think they made a calculus, we're going to lose X, X is worth Y, but we're going to earn Z, which is greater than Y, so therefore this is fine. And what happened was that uh, because of the con consumer and business activism, X became larger than they expected. And so now they're retrenching to figure out how they get to Z. They still want to get Z and they're still willing to lose X. They're just not willing to lose Y. Which it seems like they are losing at least temporarily. At least temporarily. Right. That's right. So when you look at your, your business partners and the, and the people you know that work on the projects like you do, what are you guys saying to each other? Do you like, it's time to get out, just like, just push away, just get off the OGL and anything to do with Wizards? Are people warming back up to maybe they shouldn't be so rushed to judgment because Wizards seems to be walking some of this back? What, are, what do you think? And then what are you hearing from people around you? Yeah, I think people are still processing um, the today's release um, where, they, where they rolled back most of the provisions that uh, had concerned everyone. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of forgiveness. I'm seeing a lot of mistrust still. Uh, there's a certain exaltation um, that the consumer activism led to some victory, some some pushback of the terms. Um, and, and I think that's merited, and, uh, and I participated in that. Um, that said, 
I think that Wizards' plans remain the same. And so what I expect is that the uh, prior license will remain authorized. So they won't deauthorize uh, the old open game license for old products. Um, they will ask that you use uh, the open game license, their new new license for new products supporting their sixth edition, our DD1. And what I expect they will do is they will subtly but methodically make the new edition of the game much less compatible with the old edition of the game. So that if you want to keep supporting it and keep playing it, you have to be using the new license. Um, and they will more gradually transition um, than, they, than they had planned. And they will suck it up as a loss if there's a certain amount of um, competition that's going to continue in the space that they had hoped not to have. But I think their core plan of all new content under the new license, uh, the new license will favor us better than the old license did. And over time, we expect all the creators to migrate to this new license. I don't think that core plan has changed at all. So they've just put a velvet glove over the steel fists. And so it sounds like wizards, they still want frog soup. They're like, we just cooked the frog too quickly this time. That's correct. That's exactly correct. They, they cook the frog too quick. Yeah. So put it back in the pot and turn it on a simmer instead of a boil. It's <laughs> such a crazy time to be interested in uh, role playing. It's, it is. It's, it, it, it's like I never, even ten years ago, I never thought I would get it would be almost mainstream popular, and that's really no. cool. overall. Yeah, I think it's very cool. Yeah. Since you have, since you did train as a lawyer, I wanted to hear what you thought about this theory. And the, a couple of people put this forward. Um, probably the largest one is Legal Eagle. It essentially says we have to. What a lot of this did was a lot of these companies like Paizo made them look back at the original terms, the OGL and why it seemed useful. And the theory they put forth is that people, companies, people who are making RPGs like you may have not needed the OMG helps begin with because the rules are not copyrightable. So right. you so you can copy rules and just put them in your own game. You don't need to credit Wizards of the Coast whatsoever. Uh, is that true? Was the original OGL just like a way to get some control instead of no control? And I'm sure if that's the case, Wizards is deeply regretting the situation they're in. I don't think so, no. Um, it is true that game mechanics are not copyrighted, but the expression of game mechanics can absolutely be copyrighted. And so knowing that the game is a result with a roll of a 20-sided die plus a skill plus uh, an attribute modifier... That's fine. You can't copyright that. The language you use, the name of the attribute, the name of the skill, how you reference everything, that can all be copyrighted, and it was copyrighted. And um, and companies used to litigate with each other uh, when they thought that um, people had gotten too close to their turf. So there, there was a real risk to indie developers who wanted to do games that were compatible with Dungeons & Dragons. Um, there was a real risk of being sued. Um, and again... In order to determine whether or not you were exempt because it was rules and not expression of rules required a lawsuit, and that lawsuit was going to take $500,000 just to get to summary judgment. So it didn't matter because most of them could never do that. So the way I think about it is I, wonder, I, w I want you to think of it as, think of law as nuclear weapons, okay? So the United Nations already says it's, it's a violation of international law to begin a war of aggression on another country. 
Okay. Like that's, that's and, international law. You're not allowed to aggress on another country. And yet countries have nuclear weapons with which they can nuke the hell out of each other. And so you could look at that and say, well, who cares? The UN said it's, it's illegal. Or you could do what Reagan and Gorbachev did and sit down and say, we're going to have a strategic arms limitation treaty where we're going to, we're going to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons by actively pulling our missiles back, making big, clear lines of what would ever cause us to use them, reducing the total number, and then we're therefore going to reduce the chance of nuclear war. And that's what the OGL was, right? It was a strategic arms limitation treaty. It says, look, you can use all of these things and you won't be litigated against. Don't cross this red line and everything will be fine, and everybody signed on to it, and it worked. So that's that's the best I can give as an example of why you would want to sign on to it and and why the threat of litigation was so worrisome. So what are you doing now with your company? I know Paizos, I've now talked about them three times, is now um, they are offering their own kind of version of the OG, or you know, an open gaming platform they could use. What are you, you planning to do? In your Substack, you said you were just going to move away from it completely and do your own thing. Is that still the plan? It is. So I've actually been busily scraping um, through all of my Adventure Conquer King system to create Adventure Conquer King system Imperial imprint, or Axe 2. Uh, and that's going to be stripped free of all of the system reference document language that I used um, in the first version and will be released um, you know, using a new license that isn't uh, Wizards of the Coast open game license. At present, my intent is to sign on with Paizo's new work license, um, provided that it doesn't have a morality clause or some other sort of restrictive provision that limits what creators. Yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it does, you know, then I'll just make my own license. They're not that hard to create, or I'll retain a lawyer to create one. Um, you know, I do intend to open up my game uh, so that others can support it, or. Um, uh, you know, or, or or make uh, supplements. So, do you think people who are interested in AD after this are going to be more interested in trying alternatives like yours? Do the way uh, I've already seen it. Yep. Uh, I've already seen it. My sales quadrupled this month. So, thank you, Wizards. What a kind gift. Yeah, yeah. Wizards, Wizards paid my mortgage for three months in one week. So that was really nice. Thank you, Wizards. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sometimes you have to just be grateful when your enemies make mistakes and uh, just say, thank you so much. So what do you think people should take away from this and what do you see on the horizon for, for your, not just your company, but you know, the community and the industry you're working as a whole? Um, I think part of it is it's, it's very definitely a be careful what you wish for outcome from yours because when the nineties and the early two thousands, we all desperately wanted our hobbies and pastimes to become mainstream. Um, but now that they've become mainstream, they've become subjective to the same forces uh, that made us want to escape from the mainstream in the first place. And so um, it's a little tragicomic in that, in that point of view. Uh, I think an important takeaway for everyone um, is that we've now reached the stage in late stage capitalism where Hating corporations is something you can do from both the left wing and the right wing. We've seen everyone come together as one uh, in a great swelling of hatred for what Hasbro is doing to its brand, um, and that's been that's been nice to see. It's been nice to see uh, you know gamers putting aside political differences temporarily to kind of oppose what's happening. Um, and it's a really good reminder that corporations are not people and they're not your friends and they don't really give a shit. Um, they just they don't actually care. They have products. And they have consumers that they want to monetize. 
and individual people working for corporations may care, but corporations don't care. And it's, you know, um, send them to corporations is just something to be exploited and you should never be a fan of a corporation. And as much as you may like a company like Nintendo or Wizards or whoever it is that you're enamored at the moment, you know, while exactly. now, you know, your interests are aligned, that will not always be the case. Correct. That's correct. Because they're immortal. And the person, the people that were there that you liked will be there for long. Blizzards today is not the blizzards I knew in the 90s. You know, um, it's, 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 yeah, they're like evil, immortal liches. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of the game space, I think what we're going to see is as follows. I think Wizards is going to backtrack successfully enough that the majority of 5e gamers will migrate to 6e. Um, but it won't be as much as it would have been. So let's say if last time they would have had, if they had handled it better, they would have had a 90% migration. Let's say now they'll have a 75% migration. That 15% loss will hurt them. It will destroy them because they will end up monetizing consumers that transfer over more than they're currently monetizing them. But that 15% of their market share um, represents an enormous piece of pie to everyone else. And so what's going to happen is everyone from Paizo down to Autark, every company in between is going to be trying to, you know, get a share of that pie. You know, and for Paizo, if they get if they get um, 5% of the 15%, that's a huge win for them. You know, if I get 0.5% of the 5%, that's an enormous win for me. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of new game systems come out. We're going to see a lot of new licenses come out. We're going to see a lot more openness in Reddit and uh, Twitter to people saying try games other than Dungeons and Dragons. Whereas during the 5e dominance period, uh, people were like, I'm a D&D player. And now it's going to be more like, I'm a gamer. And they're going to be more open to trying things. So I think it'll be good for a lot of the smaller companies. Um, it's just going to be a lot of work for us to get there because so many of us have to redo so many game designs. I I think that's very optimistic. I also think that's realistic. I think this I think this overall for people who are interested in tabletop, this will be a positive because I think you're right. It spreads out the interest, gets more people into it. You know, kind of reminds me some a little bit. This is a little before my time, but you know, the '90s where we had new games spout up, and all of a sudden, you know, exactly. the the cynical yep. Gen Xers like, oh, I gotta try this vampire D and D. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I remember being really excited because vampire brought hot goth chicks into gaming. Nah. And um, you know, when I was twenty years old, that was pretty much about all I could think about. So, I totally awesome. love vampire. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right, Alex. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. I it, this has been a busy time. I know you feel under the weather, so I appreciate you. Uh, agreeing to the interview helping make this happen um is there anything hey, else you want it's my pleasure I, i'm i think i'm only going to do interviews from now on when i when i'm sick because my my voice sounds deeper these yeah it gives you what gives you that that more luxurious i'm almost a smoker yeah so, i'm yeah, in a world where i have a yeah. cold um yeah thanks for having me on the show no problem uh anything else you would like to tell uh my listeners and where can they find your stuff I want to tell them that Adventure or Conquer King System Imperial Imprint, or Axe 2, will be crowdfunding in May and will be available in draft format uh, in February on my Patreon. Uh, and my Patreon is patreon.com slash autarch, A-U-T-A-R-C-H. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much, Alex. All of you guys should check it out. His games are fantastic, as is he. And until next time, friends, keep geeking out.